Hello, and welcome to episode 9 of the AESA Graduate Student Coalition podcast. I'm your host, Tim Monreal, a PhD candidate in Social Foundations of Education at the University of South Carolina. Today, I am joined by Caitlin Popolars, a PhD candidate at Wayne State University. Caitlin contributed a fantastic essay about the DeVos Agenda, Detroit, and Community Resistance for the launch of Bridges, a graduate-focused, peer-reviewed blog and online space for emerging thought in the broad area of educational studies. In this episode, we talk through her piece outlining not only the logic of education privatization, but also public pedagogy, community-centered praxis, and the use of social media. Just please introduce yourself and your research and just anything else about you that you'd like to include. Thank you for having me, Tim. I'm really, and I apologize if my dog's barking in the background, but um, it might be, it's little kids playing outside. But my name is Caitlin Popolars. I am a PhD candidate and teacher educator in the College of Education at Wayne State University in Detroit. And I am focusing in on community-based and culturally sustaining practices in teacher education. So I work to connect grassroots community organizations um, and senses of place and identity into my teacher education courses and research. So the goal um, in a lot of my research is to see how grassroots community members experience collaborating with teacher education, how teacher candidates experience building relationships and senses of belonging with the community. Um, And then I also am a social studies teacher educator as well. So I have the beautiful opportunity to do that work within the social studies. So I'm spending time researching and analyzing what it looks like to do community-based and culturally sustaining practices in social studies teacher education as well. Wonderful. And um, what's fantastic about your work is you're so uh, honest about it online. I'm sure we're going to get to that in a few minutes. But um, let's just talk through uh, your article a little bit. And the, the name of the article was The Necessity of Foundational Practice um, or Praxis in Our Current Times on the Betsy DeVos Agenda and Raising Our Collective Critical Consciousness for Social Change. So if you would, can you just give us a brief overview uh, of the article and, and really why you felt compelled to share that with us? Yes. Uh, so I had... I usually write about Betsy DeVos with um, We the People of Detroit, which is a community grassroots organization in the city founded by five black African-American women. Um, And I also 
tweet about Betsy DeVos quite a bit. Um, she's my nemesis. So, um, but I had started compiling a lot of writing actually through Twitter threads um, and Facebook posts and organizing work with We the People of Detroit. And I saw the call for the Bridges um, journal articles. So in my mind, I was thinking, yes, this is the perfect place for me to take all of these tweets and organizing emails and thoughts and conversations and put it together succinctly into an article. Um, But the main goal of my writing in the piece was really to create a love letter to the grassroots community organizers I've been learning from and working with in Detroit. So they really model the the practice of critical consciousness for social change. And their Detroiters are really incredible at getting to the root of systems of oppression that are perpetuated by people like Betsy DeVos and others. And really analyzing what is at the root to harm students and communities, educators, people of color, um, in order to resist that work against it and to imagine a future otherwise or a present otherwise as well. Um, So with the piece, I really wanted to show that process, how Detroiters really peel things back, learn about a specific person, event, issue, um, and then develop strategies to work against it instead of just complaining about it or talking about it. Um, yeah, so that that was the hope with, with the piece. And um, Pastor Bill Wiley, who I cited in it, um, thanked me for the article. So I feel like I can I can be done now, like I've done my... <laughs> my work so yeah i mean there's been a tremendous um positive reception to it um on social media and and it's well deserved and i think one of the things that you just hit on um that's that's really important to point out is you know when when betsy devos was um appointed and, and confirmed as the secretary of education you know she kind of entered this national consciousness and people at least of the circles that we run into were so adamant about uh, the harm that she would do to communities, um, especially the communities that you work with. But what you point out is that these are fights that are not new. And these are fights that these communities have been doing under the radar, right, outside of the national consciousness for many, many years. And so what, what is incumbent upon us is to learn from those communities that have been doing this work already. And I think that's what's so important. Definitely. Um. And so, you know, with that spirit, hopefully, um, and centering the community that, that you did, can you, for, for, for folks, and I'm definitely in this position, although I've been reading from your article and other sources in preparation, can you give us a rundown of, of how Michigan Schools of Choice programs work and what is the underlining kind of rationale behind school competition in Michigan mm-hmm. um, before we kind of get into um, maybe how specific communities are harmed in Michigan? Mm -hmm. Uh, So it goes back really to the early 90s. Um, We had Governor John Engler at that time, and he 
shifted a lot of our legislation and policies around school funding. So in the early 90s, school funding was changed to follow the student. So each student in Michigan is given a certain amount of funding that they carry with them. So let's say a student decides to go to a different school outside of their neighborhood, they'll carry that money with them. So that move in itself in the early 90s by Governor Engler um, really helped to pave the way for the following laws, legislation, policies that um, really deregulated school choice and really cultivated um, systems that weren't accountable in this in the state of Michigan to create school choice. Mm-hmm. So what we see now in Michigan um, are a lot of legislatures and policymakers that continue to enforce an unaccountable school choice system. So what that looks like then are um, in Detroit specifically, we've had hundreds of Detroit public schools close since 1999 and hundreds of charter schools open. And that has been reinforced through legislation passed at the state level um, by both Republican and Democratic legislatures. Um, So Michigan's this very surreal example of what happens when school choice is not done in the benefit of students and families, but in the benefit of people who are looking to privatize and to make a profit. And that's exactly the point, as I understand it, is that those resources are not only being diverted away from communities that need them the most, but Mm -hmm. also they're being diverted outside of public accountability and into um, private entities. Is that, is that, is that correct in that line of thinking? Yes, definitely. Yeah. And we, um, I, unfortunately, and I think Allie Gross is a reporter for the Detroit Free Press. She's covered this really, really well on just the the cause and effect of what happens when we're investing in privatization and disinvesting from public schools and communities and the impact that that has had in Michigan, not just on education, but on water, on land. Um, So it's part of this entire privatization system that really works to dismantle communities, um, to profit corporations, businesses, um, and individuals. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and you write in the piece, you say it's vital for all of us to understand that DeVos is not doing any of these actions because she as an individual is mean or incompetent, but it's really a perspective um, that misses the end game. And this is the end game that you're talking about, which is to privatize mm-hmm. the public good and promote individual choice for profit. And so with with that in mind, could you just talk through how, uh, in particular, Betsy DeVos is involved in 
in this thinking, how she has been involved behind Michigan, and, and kind of the fear now um, that has been realized now that she is in such a prominent position in Washington. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get um, I get very irritated when people say that Betsy DeVos doesn't know what she's doing or that she's incompetent. Um, she knows exactly what she's doing, and she's been doing it for a minute now in the state. <laughs> um, and but also through her family, so she is a. Very much the figurehead for the DeVos family in privatizing education. Um, and she has had her hands within policy think tanks in Michigan. Um, she's been involved with different education reform efforts that are now national. Um, so, like her and Jeb Bush have collaborated, she's collaborated with Alec as well. Um, so for a very long time through those foundations and policy think tanks, she's been able to push for legislation that has really worked to roll back unions in Michigan. It's worked to roll back equitable funding. Um, it has rolled back any accountability efforts for choice for charters. Um, she even published an op-ed in the Detroit news a couple years ago saying, we need to dismantle Detroit public schools and instead work towards um, individual choice. And she talks about having more options for private Christian schools, for charter schools. And now she is our secretary of education, um, which always I need to like take a minute sometimes to remind myself about that and so she's taking a lot of these policies that she's enacted in Michigan to the national and federal level so one example is the work she's doing around student loans she's actively working to deregulate federal regulation on student loan providers uh, and then she's also working to push um, vouchers and she calls them like freedom school, um, like choice policies. So she's really expanding these ideas of choice as well through funding that the federal government will provide through grants or vouchers. So she's had a lot of practice in Michigan. Um, and now she's taking a lot of that work to the federal level as well. Yeah, absolutely, and I, you know, it, it's. I'm trying to think of the right words, but so much of this is is insidious, right? Because it's it's couched in language that seems so um, beneficial, um, and that's one of the things in South Carolina we're fighting right now too. Is that even many of our legislators who are against many of these programs um, in in principle, are actually voting for them. And then when we talk to them, they say, well, that sounds good. I didn't realize that this is what the effect was. Um, and I think that's really um, part of the battle here is is who doesn't want choice, right, when it comes down to it. But in the end, that's not what's really happening. Right. Um, and so with that being said, you've been particularly vocal on social media about state intervention um, into the Benton Harbor area schools. And 
I think, if I understand this right, this might be a really good case to kind of just show exactly what happens when these programs hit the communities. So I, I know this is a short time and there's so much that's going on here, but can you explain why this particular area of schools is so important and, and maybe to what degree this example is representative of other cases in, in Michigan and also mm-hmm. what could happen to other schools in the United States? Yeah. Um, well, first, if, if listeners are on Facebook, uh, make sure you check out and follow Peace for Life Benton Harbor. So it's student and community organizers in the city of Benton Harbor that are resisting the closure of their high school, and they're amazing. Um, but in Michigan, much like in Chicago, um, in other cities throughout the country, Schools have been persistently closed for being, quote-unquote, low-performing. So because a school district isn't succeeding based on high-stakes standardized testing, the state has used that as a means to close a school. So that's happened a lot in Detroit. That's happened in a variety of predominantly African-American communities in the state of Michigan. So our Democratic governor is attempting to close Benton Harbor High School in Southwest Michigan because it's quote-unquote low-performing. So we know that high-state standardized tests only show um, who is affluent and who is not, who is testing well based on white middle-class values and who is not. And our Democratic governor, um, who was recently elected, is using a lot of these faulty high-stakes testing um, notions and logics to say that the high school needs to be closed. And it's really important, too, to note that Benton Harbor lies right along Lake Michigan, and there's a lot of waterfront development that's happening So Benton Harbor High School, part of it lies along these um, city development plans in Benton Harbor. So a lot of community members in the city have been saying, you can't close our school to develop something for affluent white people not from Benton Harbor. Um, And then we're, we're seeing this throughout the state of Michigan over and over and over. So there are Detroit public schools that have been closed and now standing where that school used to be is quote unquote urban renewal projects. Um, So this is something that keeps happening and it's not an accident. It's very much on purpose. And our current Democratic governor is just reinforcing emergency management policies like what we saw in Flint with the Flint water crisis. And she's reinforcing policies from No Child Left Behind, Race to the Top, um, to really harm predominantly communities of color instead of imagining, okay, what else could we be doing here instead of closing the school? What does it look like to get to the root of systemic inequity in public schools? Um, and she's not doing that right now. So it's it's been um, 
it's been a very difficult process, but the grassroots community of Benton Harbor, um, especially the, the high school students, they have been absolutely incredible educators and organizers. So because of their work, the high school hasn't been closed, um, but it's still under this very messy, faulty partnership with the state. So, yeah, it's... And I hope when this is released, um, this episode is released, hopefully, um, you know, we can create some Twitter threads and stuff off of the, off of the, the link to the podcast that shows, um, some of that work by the the high school students, because I have just started to, to, to learn and to read and to listen, um, um, some of the things that they've done. And it really is amazing. Uh, One of the other things I think you point out that's so important, um, in terms of, of, you know, urban renewal um, that you talk about is how defunding public schools um, because the resources then flow out to other places, they follow the child, right? Um, it also then works in many other ways, right? So when you lose funding for a school, that community is going to lose funding in many different other ways, yeah. um, which is very important, right? So it it's not only just the schools, but the communities that are, that are losing resources to typically other places that already have many more resources in place. Exactly. And I, something we say in Detroit over and over is when you close a school, you kill a community. Yeah. And yeah. that's the fear right now in Baton Harbor, that if you close the high school, you will kill the community living there. Um, yeah, so that's very real, very true. And like you said, what and what I, what's always so wonderful, like learning and following and hearing you is you always focus the community and so in, in this last, you know, question I have for you, hopefully you can talk about that is how you're how active you are on social media, especially in terms of sharing resources and people and centering people that are doing this work. Um, and one of the things that I love so much about your piece uh, is that you uh, it's really an amazing example of public scholarship because there's so many links to different community um, organizations and resources that are doing this work. Can you just explain um, how important social media or Twitter or other things is, is for you as a scholar? I don't know if you um, identify as a scholar activist, but just talk us through how important that is for you. Yeah, so I I identify, kind of, thanks to my work with We the People of Detroit, as a community action researcher. Um, but for me, Twitter has become a medium to not just share in my teaching practice, but to share in uh, the work on the ground in Detroit for social justice movements. Um, I think for me, Adrienne Keene and Eve Ewing, their Twitter platforms have been really influential for me and seeing how they utilize their space on Twitter to really talk about and inform people about different social issues. And it's very much an example of public pedagogy and community education. Uh, So because of following them, because of who I'm influenced by in Detroit, it just seemed kind of natural for my Twitter to, to be used in that way. And I also 
I know that I'm very privileged as a white cisgendered woman in the academy where I can say things on Twitter that some of my colleagues and comrades in Detroit cannot. Um, So I try to be really purposeful about my platform and how I can use that privilege to center issues happening in Detroit. And it it hasn't gotten me in trouble yet, so I'm (laughs) keep keep doing it. But I, I think the... The idea of Twitter and other social media platforms as a way to develop community education and public pedagogy is really important and really exciting. And it's something I'm seeing other grad students, um, other critical scholars like you and I, that are really pushing the boundaries of what does it mean to be in the academy right now? What does it mean to really push scholarship and knowledge to be public. Um, So it's exciting to be a part of that. Um, And I think Dr. Ebony Elizabeth Thomas models that really well on Twitter too. So it just, yeah, it's, it makes sense in my brain for it and it's fun, but yeah. yeah. And and that's one of the things if if people follow you and we'll make sure to put your handle um, in the notes and other things that you, it's not just following you, you're following a whole community and that's like you, you highlight other people. And I think that is something for um, beginning grad students, even non-beginning grad students um, to be exposed to networks of people doing this work is, is so important, right? None of us are individuals doing this work alone. So Exactly. Um, in closing, um, and is is there anything else you'd like to leave us with? Anything that we should be reading, we should be thinking about um, uh, before we, we come to an end here? I, I just finished Bettina Loves, We Want to Do More Than Survive. So to whoever, whoever is listening, go read that book and your your life will be infinitely better. So I will... That is my, my closing suggestion to read that book. Wonderful. Well, it was so awesome to have you on, Caitlin, to talk to you. I know uh, personally you've been a wonderful source of inspiration and friendship um, as we get through this doctoral journey. So thank you so much, and uh, I can't wait for everybody else to, to hear your words. And please, if you haven't already, um, we'll link to it, but please read her article, and it has rightly been garnering a lot of fantastic praise. So thanks so much, Caitlin. Have a wonderful day, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Tim. Have a good one. And that wraps up Episode 9 with Caitlin Popolars. I want to thank her for a fantastic discussion, and if you haven't done so already, check out her essay in Bridges. I will post it in the show notes. On a different note, we're getting closer to the 2019 AESA Annual Meeting in Baltimore. If you would like to share insights from a paper you are presenting or talk through any other work, please just reach out. I will be there and would love to record some shows. Also, in preparation, we will have some preview shows about Baltimore and the graduate student offerings coming up soon. Until next time, hasta luego, you all.